Good morning, folks. Welcome to another Chit Chat with Gitcats. What number are we up to? Number 31. 31. How the hell did that happen? <laughs> I'm glad it did because I had to get a whole bunch of them in to become comfortable with doing this whole live streaming thing. So it took about 25 of those until I became at ease with actually talking. And um, in that time, we've had some ripper guests. I'm going to roll through a few of them because I think this could quite possibly be the best kept secret in Guitar Nerdsville on YouTube. Uh, guests so far, we've had Steve Stevens, Jennifer Batten, Louis Shelton, Thomas McRoughlin, Sammy Bowler, Mika Tuska. Representing Australia, we've had Dave Leslie, Brett Garsed, Bob Spencer, Rick Brewster, the guys from The Poor, Luke from Dead Letter Circus. I've had people behind the brands like Two Notes, MI Audio, we've had Dave Friedman, Hughes and Kettner, Thomas Blug, ET Guitars, Electrophonic, ET, oh, ET Guitars twice on my list. Ooh, that's a double shout out. Uh, Frank <laughs> Falbo, we've had YouTubers like Henning Pauly, uh, RJ Ronquillo, we've had the guys from Tone Talk, brought some educational stuff, Pro Tools Power User Lesson, because my friend Drew at Avid wanted to teach me all the stuff I didn't know about Pro Tools. Sync licensing with my friend Space, electronic maintenance with my friend Paul from Tech Central. We've had train wrecks. Let's face it, you come to the live stream for train wrecks. I've had <laughs> people's dogs jump off their lap and take out their laptops. I've had nice. accidentally hitting um, the end broadcast right in the middle of Thomas McRoughlin talking and thinking, ah, oh, what happened? But it's cool. We got it. So if you haven't seen any of those things, please go back and check out the playlist. Like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, all that stuff. I hate saying all that. I'm actually going to hit the little buttons that makes this go bing, bing, bing in the background. Hopefully I don't have to do that too many times because I've just done my spiel. But let's see. I hit the button. Let's make sure I hit the right one. Ding dong. Who's at my door? It is no other than Mr. Bruce Egnator. Hey, Bruce. How you doing? Hey, Rick. I am great. Good morning. Good morning. Well, good evening to you, and thank you for mm -hmm. joining me. Um, Bruce, you, um, you're a bit of a, a godfather of the whole um, modding of amplifiers before you came out with your own line of amplifiers. I usually start by asking people, what got you hooked on this crazy world of guitar, and for you to be electronics? So um, how did it all start for you, mate? Well, um I got old. That's how I became the godfather. But, uh, you know, it's the usual. I was a teenager, had to take everything apart. I had an interest in stuff. I did go to school for electronics eventually and hated it. I wanted to be an engineer and, well, I thought I wanted to be an engineer and then I wanted to be a musician. So that didn't work together. Um, but, you know, teenager just taking things apart and screwing around and studying, studying and trying to learn everything you can before they invented the internet mm. um, is how you did it 50 years ago. Yep. So that's where it started. And it went from there when I, um, I mean, there's a long history of random stuff that I've done. Um, but that's the beginning. Had a couple of my own little repair shops where, unfortunately, you learn on other people's equipment. But that's how you do it. 
And in fact, I was working at a music store. There was a famous music store in Detroit. I live in Detroit um, called Gus Zappi Music. And the guys, the older guys that live here will know who that is. And it was the coolest place on earth. There was a guy named Gus Zappi that owned it. And he made accordions. That's, cool. It was an old, old school store. And his son came in years later and sort of started to turn it into a, a cool rock and roll store. Um, and I got a job there as a salesman. And I was going to school at the time, learning electronics. And Gus one day says to me, he goes, hey, you're, you're, you're learning electronics. Could you fix amps? I said, I don't know. And he said, do you want to try? I said, okay. So this was like my first uh, step in that. And he set me up in a little room and I bought the, an oscilloscope and all the stuff that one needs to do that. And that just kind of took off from there. Cool. Um, then I did uh, attempt to work at literally every repair shop in Detroit. Every music store, every repair shop, uh, just learning and learning and learning. And here I am 50 years later. So Wow, wow. So back then you said you were, you were learning on other people's <laughs> gear. Were there certain modifications or anything back then that, that people were requesting? Or was there common issues that, you, that were always coming your way that you had to repair? <laughs> Well, Marshalls always needed tubes. That was pretty, pretty much normal every day. Um, the modification thing kind of came later. Um, I don't. I'm not good with years, but uh, you know, early twenties. And in fact, one thing. This was before master volumes and okay. high gain and anything. You had an amp. You turned it all the way up. And that's how you played. So every band was very loud, uh, and they all used Marshalls or, or whatever. You know, a lot of them didn't. Um, so I, for my own, I used to play when I was younger. I don't play so much anymore, but when I was younger, I played in bands and all that kind of stuff. Um, and... I kind of came up with this harebrained idea for myself. And what I did was took, I had a twin, twin reverb, and I made little AB box where I could switch from channel one to channel two. This is very primitive. This is in the primitive time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, got, I found this old Gibson amp chassis wasn't in a box, just a, I don't even know what model it was, just some little chassis thing. And I put a load resistor on that and put it on the output side, one of the outputs on the AB box, and then a graphic equalizer after that, and then went into the first channel. And that was my overdrive channel, which was actually the Gibson amp overdriving. Wow. So that was... That was kind of my first attempt at distortion. You know, we thought it sounded great. I can't imagine how horrid it really sounded. But back then, it was great. So that was kind of the first, I won't call it a modification, but first of trying to get amps to do something I wanted that they didn't. Sure. So um, not sure how it went after that. I uh, it's funny because I there's something called a post 
phase inverter master volume. It's a circuit now that all the amp modder, modding guys use to get some gain out of a, a stock marshal, like a four input marshal or whatever. And uh, I don't know if I invented that <laughs> 40, 40 years ago, but that I came up with that circuit. And I started doing that as a modification for local guys. This is all local stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Detroit had a, back then was a, a huge rock scene. So I hear. Um, yeah, I mean, we had, uh, I don't know, Bob Seeger and Ted Nugent and all those guys, Iggy Pop. And there were a, a gazillion local bands. It was like a real happening thing. So I became, even though I didn't know what I was doing, uh, I kind of became the, the guy. So they, I did this amp, and then a guy in a real heavy, heavy, heavy rock band came to me. He goes, I have a ch he, he saw what I had done. He goes, I have a champ. Could I plug that in and do what you did with my Marshall? I thought, well, heck, Sure. So he went and plugged it in. He didn't ask me how to do it, and he blew it up because it didn't have a resistor on it. Um, but that suddenly became like a thing. Everybody started bringing, not everybody, but quite a few guys started bringing me champ amps. Really? Not like vintage cool stuff, just yep. crappy you know, champ amps. And I'd put a resistor and a quarter-inch jack, and they'd plug it into their marshals and just crank. So it was kind of in lieu of pedals so they were actually having you know using a an amp to overdrive an amp so that cool. was kind of the first the first screwing around stuff i did yep um uh, again i'm not sure how this all worked but uh at one point mesa boogie came out with the dual mode, you know, where it had the lead, gain, and master that you could switch in and out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. Um, but I wanted two channels with tone controls on both channels. So being the naive guy I was, I said, well, I can make an amp. So, <laughs> so I did. And uh, it worked. Cool. Um, it actually sounded okay. And then people started to see that because I was still playing out at the time and people would see it and go, wow, what is that? So I ended up making a bunch of those. And that was kind of the first stuff I actually made, you know, from scratch for other people. Okay. Um, and then I don't know what happened next. <laughs> <laughs> so was there a, uh, a Holy Grail amp for you at the time that you were shooting towards the sound of? Well, I was pretty much a Marshall guy, but now I'm thinking about those amps, and they weren't really even Marshall. Um, you know, I'm going to say no. I was, you know, I'm out here in Detroit. I'm not one of the cool guys out in California or anything like that, so I was kind of on my own. There wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of people doing things here other than the bands wanted stuff. Um, so I took things from other, you know, other amps. I, the, my, the amp I made had a clean fender channel and I actually don't recall what the overdrive channel was. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but it wasn't exactly a Marshall. It was just kind of, well, I'll try this. And it worked. So eventually it became hot rodding Marshalls cool. because that's such a popular thing. And that's where the, where the world went. Everybody wanted their Marshalls hot rodded. So I did end up doing an awful lot of that kind of stuff. Um, but there wasn't like, I didn't own the Holy Grail amp as a guide. I just kind of knew what I wanted and I try to interpret what the customers wanted and combine that into one answer or one thing. And, uh, so I came up with some odd things, mm -hmm. but they're still valid today. It's funny. I did a, a guy asked me about it the other day. I did a magazine article for Guitar Guitar Player Magazine. Uh -huh. uh, God, in early 1970s, and it was they called it the Mega Drive, and it was adding a tube to the input of your Marshall. So cool. it was like, you know, adding gain, and and it sounded great, and some modification I'd been doing, and I had a guy just the other day contact me, asking about it because there's a bunch of amps out there that have it in there, and he, uh, it's still valid today. This was like 40 years ago, and yeah. it's still something, you know, minor tweaks, but it's still the the same mod everybody wants now. So nice. everything just kind of keeps coming around. That's why I was going with the phase inverter master volume. We, I did it back then, and then it sort of disappeared for a couple of decades, and now it's back. So that's the new modification that everybody discovered. It's like, you know, we were doing that 40 years ago, but that's cool. Yeah. 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 A phase yeah. inverter master volume. Okay. I don't know exactly what that means, <laughs> but um, I'm not that technical. That's why there's guys like you around. Uh, yeah. Now, I know you as uh, in the early days of knowing about Ignator as having four channel amps that sort of really capture the, the heart and soul of, say, a Fender Twin, Hot Rodded Marshall, Plexi, etc. Mm -hmm. How did that concept come about? And this is pre-modular, pre I believe. Yes. Yeah. yeah. How, did that come, how did that concept come about and what issues did you have trying to get that out of one amplifier? The issues are many. I, I don't recall. But uh, at that point, I was pretty good. I wasn't just like fumbling along and, you know, hoping for the best. I was actually capable of writing something down, a schematic, and kind of knowing what it was going to do before I built it. You couldn't simulate. You know, nowadays guys draw schematics on a computer and the computer actually simulates what's going to happen. They don't have to build anything to yeah, right. try and do that. Um, well, you know, preamps were getting real big. I don't know when that was, early 80s maybe, when Soldano and CAE and Engel, and there were all these preamps. And Soldano, he made the three-channel one, and who else made the three-channel? Sir, Custom yep. Audio. Yep. And I thought, well, that's dumb. Why don't we just make four channels? So... So I did, um, and actually I worked with Dave Friedman on that one. Uh, I designed it and built it and sent it to him, and he kind of tweaked it, and we went back and forth until it was pretty darn cool. So that was the first. That was the first 
what I would call production thing we made. We made them in my house. My wife and I built them all ourselves. She, she has no electronics, but she solders and does exactly what I show her. So it's pretty cool. Um, that's why I married her. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we made this preamp called the IE4. It was a red one. Uh, it with the four channels and that kind of took off a little bit. We didn't make, I mean, you're talking about a guy in his house. Mm -hmm. So we might've made a couple hundred of them, the whole history of, you know, the world. But, um, that kind of took off on Dave was working at making music in California at the time. So he was, he was in contact with all the big guys they shopped at making music when he was younger. So he was, you know, hooking all these guys up with this preamp. So he sold a whole bunch of them. A lot of famous people had them. I can't tell you who. But mm. um, then the other interesting thing that happened wasn't our doing, but uh, the third channel on that thing became kind of like the darling of Nashville for slide players. Oh, cool. Don't ask me why. I don't play slide. Yeah. Um, but it had something that they all loved. So we sold a ton of stuff in California because of Dave. And then we sold a bunch of stuff in Nashville, mostly for that channel. Wow. Which was, and then a lot, you know, all the studio guys ended up getting them. Dan Huff and I, I don't even know all the cool guys. Um, but there was, I remember we had a list, I probably have it somewhere, but I don't know where, of, uh, all the people that used my stuff. And it was like, wow, <laughs> there's a lot of cool guys on there. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and that was a long time ago, but, uh, so that's kind of where it started. That's what made, and it said Agnator on it. So that became the, uh, the first stuff. And then we just made a head version of it. It was called the TOL. Mm -hmm. uh, we made a TOL 100. And everybody says, what's TOL? And a friend of mine, I don't know if you know Randy Jacobs. I've heard um, of Randy. Guitar player. He used to live in Detroit. He grew up here, so we were friends here. And then he moved to California and got famous. And he's played with, he became a studio guy out there in California um, with, I mean, he played on Bonnie Raitt's records and Rolling Stones and all this stuff. But uh, he, not sure where he's going with that, but he, uh, he had one of those, of course. Yeah. But um, so we had all these people using those. And, oh, that's where it was. He, uh, he said, you know, Bruce, you make the tone of life. He would, Randy Jacobs was one that said it. Wow. And uh, so we called it that. So it's awesome. the TOL because of what Randy said. So we did the head. And now that I'm thinking about it, what happens when you make something? It happens to every amp guy. Mm -hmm. You think that you've just made the ultimate amp that's so perfect that everybody's going to want one and they couldn't possibly want something else. The TOL was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And next thing I know, people are contacting me to modify them. Well, can it do this? Can it do that? Can you make this sound, that sound? So that's kind of where the modular thing came from, because I was modifying my own amps. It's cool. like 
this is stupid. Why am I? Why do I have to modify my own stuff? Yeah. Um, so uh, my partner here, Frank Lamar, my business partner here. Yep. Um, we came up with this modular thing, um, and that's where that came from. Okay. So that was kind of cool. Yep. Now the modular thing that is something that I got into. Years ago, when it had been licensed out to uh, Randall, and I was getting my modules uh, modified by Dave Friedman, which is how I okay. first got uh, my introduction to, to his sound. But you were making them yourself first. Um, yeah. Before you licensed them out. Yep. Um, right. How long into it before you started licensing the design out to, to others? Um. Only a few years, and it was just Randall yeah. at the time. Yep. Um, in fact, what happened, we went, Frank and I went to our first NAM show in, must have been Nashville. wasn't the big one, so it was Nashville at the time. We had a little rack. We didn't have any money, so we had a little rack with the IE4, no, with the modular preamp in it, and... I had we didn't have a power amp, so I I threw something together with parts I had laying around on a piece of wood. So that was sitting behind this stuff. Wow! And we had two cabinets, two 112 cabinets, one on each side, with uh, vintage 30 speakers, and a couple of chairs and a guitar. And that's all we had. So people would come by and look at it, and these guys from Randall who we didn't know uh, kept coming back. Like, throughout the whole show, they'd come back, they'd bring somebody else, they'd come back, talk, you know. So by the end of the show, they said, this is the coolest thing we've ever seen. How do we get involved? Nice. So that's where that happened. Uh, we hadn't planned that. We weren't looking to license it or anything. Mm -hmm. um, one interesting thing about that whole modular thing is, you know, people say, well, don't the power tubes matter? And, you know, all the, it's the same. You have one power amp with multiple preamps. How can it possibly sound like these different amps? And you kind of learn that, well, it kind of can. Mm -hmm. Exactly. No, of course it's not exactly the same. But uh, it was funny because one of the, a guy who owned a store in Nashville, there was a, a building called Soundcheck which was a giant rehearsal place where all the big bands would rehearse. And this guy, Dave, owned a music store in that building. So he was totally connected to every Nashville musician. In fact, that's where they had the floods about 10 years ago okay. that destroyed everything. Yep. That was that building. Okay. And uh, he came by at this show, and one of the modules was a Vox. We had a clean one, a, I don't know, overdrive a Vox and a Marshall thing. I don't even remember exactly, but one was a Vox. And he came by and he's like, hey, what do you got here? And he, he, he's kind of a slightly gruff guy, but I like Dave. He was great. Um, he said, uh, what do you got? We showed him. He goes, what's that Vox thing? He said, well, it's the Vox module. He goes, let me hear it. So we played it for him. He goes, hmm. He goes, all right. And he leaves. And he comes back later with these local guys, studio guys. And at the time, this is long ago, um, 
they these guys all became famous, but they weren't. One was Brent Mason. Okay. I don't even remember who they all were. I just remember Brent Mason when they were nobody. Yep. So they come by. They're the studio. They're the the cool studio guys in Nashville, yep. and they come by. And Dave says, "Show them what you got there." So these guys start playing the Vox module, and uh, they flipped out. Wow. They go, I can't believe this. I can't believe this sounds so close to my Vox amp. They said, I would take this on the road and leave my priceless AC30 at home. So that kind of took off a little. They, you know, all these guys started getting these. And like I said, it was when the racks were big. So everybody had to have one in their rack, you know. And in Nashville, if one guy finds something cool, they all have They'll to jump have on it. yet. Yeah, that's how it works there. Or used to, anyway. I assume it still does. Um, so that's where the modular thing happened. Okay. And we continued to make them even while Randall was. That was part of our arrangement. Mm -hmm. And they had their own modules um, that I would design for them. And then they would kind of tweak them and make them sound the way they want. Uh, but I designed, you know, I still, it was still our design, so I did all the circuit boards for them and all that kind of stuff. Um, gosh, I don't know, where'd we go from there? <laughs> so when when you uh, licensed them out to, to Randall and you said they were coming up with their, their own ones, were you happy with the sound of the modules as opposed to yours? Like, you know, yours were hand-wired, et cetera, by you. Um did they keep up the level of quality control that you expected? Because they didn't sound uh, the same. Well, they didn't sound the same. No. Um, I would say quality control, not necessarily. They had quite a bit of inconsistencies in manufacturing um, where, you know, we're sitting there hand-making everyone one at a time. They're pretty consistent. And it was our own sounds. Um, they kind of had... They had their customers, and we had ours, and they were kind of different. You know, Randall was a lot of the heavy metal guys and uh, the rock guys, and and we did the same, but they had their own group. So to answer your question, I wasn't displeased with it. We were making money off of them, which was why you would license something to somebody. Yep. Um, and I worked with them the entire time, okay. so I would help them to fix problems or whatever. Yep. Um, so they were, they were fine. They weren't, I guess they weren't really the level of a, you know, cool handmade thing, but they were very much the same circuits, yep. same layouts, you know, all that. Yep. And they were all interchangeable, you know, between you could put an Egnator in a Randall box or vice versa. So. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, also, you had the, the R2, RT250 power amp that went uh, along with it. Um, that, that wasn't what you called your one. That was the Randall version that you designed. Yeah, we yeah. never actually, we never made a power amp, we uh, being Eggnator yeah, back then. Yeah. Um, that was strictly a Randall product. Hey, I forgot about that one. That was a uh, thing I did for Randall. Yep. And it was interesting. They... They said, make us a really cool power amp. We need something to go with that. So just do what you want to do. And it's like, okay, cool. So I get to be creative. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a pretty cool power amp. And it's really good. It was made, 
think we made they made them here. Pretty sure because we had high board transformers. We had like good parts in them and stuff. American made transformers and okay. all that kind of. Yep. So um, that was a cool lamp and it had the thing where you could put different tubes on each side mm. it was 50 watts per channel and you could put different tubes and then it had MIDI so you could use it as a mono channel switching amp. Yep. It was kind of getting around the, well, I have a Marshall, I want EL34s, I have a Fender, I want 6L6s. Okay, there you go. Mm-hmm. So plug this in and you can switch along with your preamp. So yep. that was the the concept behind cool. that. Well, I thought it was yeah. a great concept uh, for somebody wanting to learn the sound of different uh, tubes in a power amp and the effect they had. Because I know for me, I had... 6L6s on one side, EL34 on the other, and to switch between the two, especially when it's cranked up a bit, you know, you could tell the difference between the two. Um, yeah. Were you doing that in, um, in any of the amps that you were building beforehand? Because I do know some of your designs, you can blend between two different power yeah, that, sections, can't you? Was that, did that come before that? that? No. That, well, the RT250 did. That was uh, the tube mix control uh came later um in fact the i'm trying to think what was between that and well we had our our thing here i we had a repair shop and we were building the modular stuff and all that kind of thing and dave friedman who i've known since he was a kid um he was doing some stuff for this company called ETI, which is now Boutique Amps, mm-hmm. the ones that make his stuff. Um, family-owned business. Kooky guy named Avi owns it and mm-hmm. runs it, and it's great. Um, he, he uh, Dave had been trying to do some stuff for them. They decided they wanted to get into the guitar amp business. One of their sales guys says, hey, we need to make guitar amps. So they found a Chinese company that would put your name on an amp. So they did. So they had all these amps. It was called B-52. Okay. And just cheap stuff. And they sold like a gazillion of these amps with their name on it. And they changed the cosmetics a little bit. And then they started <clears throat> they started failing and nobody liked them and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and they contacted Dave and Dave looked at it and he said, Dave Friedman. And he said, uh, no, I don't want to touch that. Okay. But I know, he says, but I know a guy. So I was that guy. So they came to me and said, can you fix these? So I did, best I could. Um, and then we started some new models of those. He got rid of the old B-52 Chinese design stuff. Mm-hmm. And I actually designed some amps for them still made in the chinese factory over there and they were okay um they sounded great but you know the usual reliability issues Mm -hmm. so uh we did that and how did we get short we did that for a while and then avi the owner of boutique amps um he asked me if I wanted to design a new line of Eggnator products that would be made in China 
and he would distribute them. Okay. And I had never done any of this Chinese manufacturing. Um, so it's like, okay. Yeah. So I, uh, started working on that. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the reason I'm going there, that was the stuff that was truly mass produ- mass produced. Um, they sold tens of thousands of amps, the little tweakers. I think they sold like 30,000 of those There's things. Tweaker right there behind me. Head. There it is. Yep. yep. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, one of the things I've always tried to do, if I was going to make a product, it's like, you know, I want to make something new that the world will like. Uh, the first thing on the list is what's going to make this different than something else. Okay. Why would you buy the Eggnator instead of all the other ones? If I just copied the Marshall or whatever and didn't do anything, it's like it's just another clone sure. of something. Yeah. So that's kind of my, uh, I don't know what you call it. That's my design concept. What can I do that's different? Even if it's just a couple of cool features or something like that. So to answer your question about the tube mix thing, interestingly enough, it wasn't the tweaker, it was the Rebel. Mm-hmm. One up from that that has uh, two 6V6s and two EL84s, the smaller power tubes. Yep. pair of each. And the production ones had this knob. You could pan from one or the to the other or mix them together. It was kind of a cool idea. Um, originally, it had a switch. But just switch between the two pairs of tubes. That okay. was the first. In fact, those are in Australia. They actually made them and sold them. And they went to Australia. And then one of the guys at, the, at ETI or Boutique Amps uh, found that Boogie had a patent on that switch. Oh, okay. On switching power tubes. So they call me, they being Avi and all those guys, um, they call me, we got a problem. I'm on vacation with my family at the beach, at the, I forgot what you call it, in North Carolina, Outer Banks, they call it. It's a serious vacation spot. So I'm vacation with them, and they say, we got a problem. That switch that you have on the amps is Boogie has a patent on it. Oh, no. And I said, oh, that sucks. They said, what can you do about it? I said, now? Yeah, this is serious. So my family goes to the beach, and I'm sitting there at the table in this little, you know, vacation shack that we rent. And... uh that idea just kind of popped into my head out of nowhere. It's not like, you know, we sit around and we're so creative that we come up with all this cool stuff. I would have never come up with that if I wasn't forced to do it. Yep. I had no choice. They said, what are you going to do? They've started, they already had, you know, 8,000 of them on the assembly line. They had to stop it. They said, what are you going to do? I was like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Blend, blend. You know? Yeah. So here I'm sitting there. It's like, oh, I wonder if we could do that thing, that blend mix thing. And I came up with a circuit to do it. It's nothing tricky. 
the problem with it is it required a custom pot. You know, on the back of the shaft is is a thing, mm-hmm. you know, a little disc, and you know, yep. it's a pot. Well, this required a four stack, or they call them gang, yeah. but a four section center tapped this crazy custom pot. And I drew this up, and it's like, wow, this will work. Cool. So. Fortunately, when you make stuff in China, it's it's nothing to get custom parts. You know, here to get a custom pot like that would cost you, you know, $12 a piece on a, you know, an amp that sells for 80 bucks. Mm-hmm. But uh, in China, it's no big deal. Oh. Anything custom is not even an issue. So we were able to get the parts made because that's where the amps were made. And it worked. So point being that you just kind of come up with things sometimes out of necessity or whatever. I mean, it does take, I suppose, some level of creativity to come up with it, but that's how half the stuff I come up with. In fact, there's a bunch of the, um, you know, the two-tone stuff, the stuff that sold in Guitar Center Mm -hmm. and also got shipped all over the world, the stuff that had the two-color vinyl. That was all... The Chinese made stuff. So there was the Tweaker and the Rebel. Renegade was another one, my personal favorite. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there was the Tour Master, this big behemoth, mm. four channel, 100 pound thing. Um, that's funny because that was Guitar Center. That came before all the others. We did that first. Guitar Center, who Avi was buddies with, hmm. he said, hey, I got a guy that can do cool new amps. What do you want? And they gave, they came and met with me, and they said, we want every feature in the world in one amp. Wow. Whatever you can do and more. So it was like, okay. <laughs> so I came up with, I don't know if you ever saw the back of a Tour Master. I did. Each each channel has a slide switch mm-hmm. to pick uh, whatever, 150, 25, and 10 watts. And you can set each channel with different power, all this goofy stuff. And the only reason that happened was because Guitar Center came to us and said, we want everything, and we want stuff that's not on anybody else's amps. Cool. So that's where that came from. And then we started to make the whole line after that. Sure. Was that before you know, the tweaker? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was the first, the first thing, and they were a lot of trouble. We had trouble with transformers because the Chinese manufacturer changed something without our knowledge, mm. and stuff gets shipped all over the world. And a year later, the transformers start to fail. I think they replaced like four thousand transformers under warranty. Yeah. So that kind of hurt Agnator pretty good. Yeah. You know, the reputation became, you know, they're not, they're great, but they're not reliable. Yeah. So, but, you know, you fix the problems and you, you hope they forget. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, now, whenever, whenever anybody has brought that up with me, um, I've always let them know that, no, the Chinese didn't deliver on the specs that you wanted. Right. And, and therefore, that's why the problems, particularly in Australia. And I remember when I met you at NAM, not the last one, but the one beforehand. As soon as you heard my accent, you asked me, 
Can I ask you about the power? Is it true that you know that delivers oh. up to? Uh, <laughs> I forget what the what the figure was, and I uh, messaged my my tech Paul, um, and he comes back to me and said, "Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does spike ridiculously high here in Australia." Um, right. So, it, I, I know that which is bad. Absolutely, that's bad for transfer. Even an, even if it's not a defective transformer, that can still be bad. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, I had a. Um, I do a lot of work in Pro Tools, and I had the Pro Control 24, and I was warned about that. Like, you've got to get a, a line conditioner because right. the power spiking, especially around the Brisbane area. I'm on the Gold Coast, which is about an hour south of Brisbane. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, my friend who works for Avid just said, man, those things just blow up like you wouldn't believe because of the power. Wow. Yeah. Mm. So, wow. Um, Well, it's hard. I was going to say, it's hard to design stuff to be foolproof. Like mm. you guys, if I recall, that your voltage would go up to as high as 250 volts, mm. if I re- remember what he said. I think he even said you 260. Know, I, I, I didn't want to say the yeah. figure, but I think he said 260 at times. You can't really design something that just plugs in and works with a power, you know, well, AC power from the wall that varies 20 percent you know you design it you kind of try to go to the middle 220 and 240 so then they try to standardize at 230 and then you guys are 260 yeah so it's kind of like what do you do you can put extra taps on a transformer in other words we could you could add a switch or something customize the transformer to work there but you know are you gonna do that no, <laughs> the manufacturers aren't going to do that. They're just going to hope for the best. Sure, so. sure. So the yeah. whole time when you were having the uh, the Chinese line made, you were still making mm-hmm. your own amplifiers, hand building them, yeah? Yes. Well, we were making the modular stuff. We had quit making the, the IE4 and the TOL long before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were still making the modular stuff. At the same time, we were doing the, the, the Chinese stuff. Sure, sure. Oh. And then fast forward a few years now, um, there's the Synergy line, which I was very excited when I heard that that was coming out because, as I mentioned earlier, I was a, a Randall MTS guy. Uh, my only issue with it was how bloody heavy it was. I had the RM4 and the R2, RT250 in Oh, yeah. And I bought it in a big flight case, uh, all fully suspended. <laughs> and I would have people ring me up and say, hey, man, you want to come over for a jam? And I would look at that rig and think, no, I couldn't be bothered <laughs> moving that. It was so yeah. heavy. Um, I think it was that, that power amp. Um, but yeah. th- that sound, uh, especially, as I said, I had uh, modules tweaked by Dave Friedman. Mm-hmm. He sold me an SL Plus module, which he said was a prototype for Steve Stevens. Um, and the sound of that, I always just bring up the harmonics in it where um, I would just play a chord. People would come around and marvel at this. I'd just play a big open drop D chord and just go, listen to that. It was like you were inside this cloud of sound looking around, not uh. outside going, what is that? You could just hear the clarity. Wow. So when I heard that um, about the Synergy line coming out, um, I had gone down many different roads of different amps and just the versatility. I hadn't found anything quite like uh, your modular design. So I was very happy to learn that was coming out. Um, 
how did all that come about afterwards? When we were doing the Chinese stuff, I had to keep calling it the Chinese stuff, but it's the Chinese it stuff. It is, yeah. Um, <laughs> no getting around it. Yep. Uh, not that that's a bad thing necessarily, but it was a good value. Got a lot for your money. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, where did we go with that? Oh, when I we were doing that and all the Chinese stuff, I was going to China four or five times a year. Oh, really? For a week or two at a time, and I'm, I'm getting old, you know. Yep. Um, the first time I went was really cool. What an adventure! The second time was like, okay, this is the same as the first time. And then, you know, the ninth or tenth time, I was like, oh, God, I don't want to go to China again. <laughs> and Guitar Center had dropped the Ignator line. You have a finite life with Guitar Center. Sure. Any manufacturer does. If your stuff isn't maintaining a certain sales level, they stick green stickers on it and blow it all out for less than cost. And it ruins the whole market because all the stores paid more. Mm than Guitar Center sells it for. But, so that's what happened with that. Um, So the demand for Eggnator went way, way down. And I couldn't keep up. I'm the only guy. I mean, they I didn't do the selling or the manufacturing, but I was expected to, like, crank out new products. New amps twice a year, all that kind of stuff. And it just honestly became too much. I couldn't maintain that pace. So, um, my wife just walked in. That's okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so, I, I asked uh, Abby if he wanted to buy Eggnator. You don't need me. I'll help you out. You know, I'll still work for you, but I don't want to continue to do that. And they were down to, I don't know if you notice now, the only things they sell are the Tweaker and the Rebel, I think. Okay. All the all the big stuff is gone. All the hundred watt heads, you know, all mm-hmm. those kind. Even the Renegade was disappeared years ago. Um, so I was like, all right, I don't need to do this. I'm not, you know, contributing to the world. They're just continuing to just make these few things. So I said, do you want to buy Eggnator? And they were like, yeah, we'll buy Eggnator, but we want that modular patent too, because cool. I wasn't doing anything with it really. Yep. We did all we could, and we're just, you know, a couple guys in a house. And So, anyway, uh, they, I sold them the Eggnator brand, so I no longer own Eggnator, which is kind of weird when you don't own your own name, but mm-hmm. I'll get around it. Yep. Um, but they own the Synergy patent, and they wanted to do something with it. So, that's what they did. So, they came, they bought it, and I don't trust me, I didn't get rich over it. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, then I became – so then let me pick up. When we did this years ago, the modular thing, mm-hmm. I went to all my friends that made amps, Peter Diesel, you know, all these guys. I said, hey, you want to you wanna do modules for this cool thing we're doing? And everybody was like, nah, that doesn't you – know, I don't want to do it. It's going to cut into my sales, you know, all that kind of stuff. So nobody wanted to do it back then. Well, the boutique amp world has changed a lot over the years, and everybody's kind of struggling with the boutique amp world. 
Mm-hmm. That's why Avi's buying everybody up. <laughs> um, so I uh, he I sold him the thing, and now at this time in history, and Dave was obviously involved with Avi because they make his amps. Yep. So it was like, okay, well, let's make stuff, but let's see if we can get other people involved now. And everybody was like, oh, yeah, I'm open to that. It's like, well, where were you five years ago? But regardless. um, So my uh, function in the whole Synergy thing, I design the circuit boards, the layouts, um, the electronic stuff. And like Dave or whoever just gives me a schematic on a paper napkin or whatever. Yep. And then I, I turn that into a module. Okay. So that's my function in the big picture. So these so when they say these guys designed it, they did. Mm-hmm. And then I design this, you know, I just do the physical design. Goes back to Dave, his module. He tweaks whatever parts he wants to. And then it becomes a production module. Um, and then I did these, uh, the amps. What are they? The 30, Sin 30 and 50. 50. Yep. I did, I did those. And then Steve Fryett was also involved, did, um, the Sin 1 and Sin 2 preamps. He made, he designed those units. Um, and then there are a couple other guys involved. Now there's a, a fella out there named Peter Ahrens, A-R-E-N-D-S. And he came from, I don't know if he was an owner or what. He's from Germany. Okay. And he moved from Germany. He's an engineer to work and live out there in California. Um, he had a company or has a company called Ampete. Oh, yeah. And they make they make the amazing head switchers and all that. And they make amps. Yep. So he's out there now because I the whole time I was out there with them, uh, I fought with Avi for years that you need an engineer full time out here. Sure. And it took 12 years to make that happen. But Peter's out there now. So it's kind of taken a lot of the, the demands off of me, which I don't mind. You know, I do my own thing. Um so that's what's going on with that. Okay. Okay. You know. So you mentioned the Ampete switch, Ampete switcher. Um, now I had uh, an Agnator amp switcher years ago when I had multiple heads. I was recording at home or going into a load mm-hmm. box. Uh, and you very kindly, you, you, they'd been discontinued for a while, and I emailed you, and you hit me back with, "Hey, I've I've got the parts lying around. I think I could build you one." And oh, you I? very graciously, <laughs> very graciously did. Is the Ampete switcher, um, amp switcher, is that similar in design to your unit, or has that gone different, different road? It's cons- same basic thing: heads and speakers. Um, theirs is much more sophisticated. They make it so you can select. I don't know. They got one that's up to eight heads. I think. Wow. And eight different speakers, and you can mix and match in any combination and store those those combinations. Cool. So they're like super cool and built like a tank because they're German and yeah. all that stuff. So yeah, I think they make a couple smaller ones, but they're still more sophisticated than my basic 
four heads in the one cabinet thing. Sure, Which sure. was cool. Nothing wrong with that, but, you know. Oh, it was a lifesaver for me trying to run multiple heads. And this is just for recording at home, but it just sa- did save a lot of time to be able to just flick between them. Now, you, you mentioned uh, just the Sin 1 and the Sin, Sin 2. There is some slight differences in those to your uh, chassis design. Um, I'm trying to think. There's like a is it? It's not a sag option. It's what is it? Well, it implemented? is. It is sag, yeah. And there's it, a it, knob on there. It's called sag. Okay. And it's uh, that was Stevie Fryatt's thing, and he has that on some stuff that he made. It was on his that really nice preamp he made. I can't gr three or anyway. Steve made a a pretty cool preamp a few years ago, and that had the sag control. And the idea is that what sag is in a guitar amp is when you play really loud, the power supply sags. It might be 450 volts, and when you blast the amp, it might drop down to 420 volts, just pulling numbers out of nowhere. But uh, that's the sag. It's the power supply itself voltage actually dropping um so he came up with it and that's part of a it's a feel thing yeah and that's part of the uh uh idea with putting it in a preamp is you can sort of simulate that power supply dropping when you play the thing and that's what it does you know, the power supply is lower voltage than the, the big amps, but it drops from, you know, 350 to 300 volts or whatever it is. Yep. Um, so that's what that is. But that's a Steve Fryette okay. thing from, from his stuff. Sure, sure. Now, I, I, I must admit, my um, Australia is a very big place, and the nearest dealer for Synergy is 2,000 kilometers away from me. So I actually haven't had a chance to get my hands on it. The only time I've had a play with it was at 42 Gear Street at Henning Pauly's place. So I was part of that event. Um, okay. and, and I had a bit, of a, a bit of a play. So that's why I couldn't quite remember if it was SAG. But I do remember Dave Friedman telling me there was something else built into the Synergy that auto-sensed uh, to try and get more of the feel of the amps that they're recreating. What, what was that he was telling me about? That is, there's a feature on all of them, mm-hmm. not just the Sin 1 and Sin 2. It's on everything. Yep. Um, what And this is, Steve Fryette came up with this one, I think. But what it is, there's a switch on the module that you can preset. It's like hidden inside the modules. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things with all the different amps is the there's an input tube your amp goes into a tube and that amplifies stuff um the components on that tube affect the low frequency response and like dave for example friedman cuts a lot of low end right at that very first preamp stage or first Mm -hmm. tube stage fender does not uh, every so all these companies have their own little combination of a resistor and a capacitor. What the mods the switch on the module? So what we did was put three different popular combinations into that circuit, and then the module tells that circuit which one of those to pick. So it's really just the base response. Okay. 
Like there's one in the middle and then there's more or less. Yep. So if you have a fender module, you'd switch that little switch inside the module to yep. make it have more bass like a fender. And, yep. and now you don't have to. I mean, you know, but that was the idea with that. Yeah, right. Okay. So I, that was I, the other kind of hidden cool thing. Cool, cool. Now, uh, in my mind, I'm thinking that's kind of like throwing a, a treble booster in front of a, a Vox amp, which is notoriously loose and, and woolly, I guess, when, when you crank those up. It doesn't sound like Brian May until you put a treble yeah. booster in front of it, and um, there's your This sound. is more kind of the opposite where it's bass cut rather than treble boost. Sure, sure. But it's a tight thing. It's a feel, and it's tighter or looser for sure. That's <laughs> what it does. Yep. So, and there's three settings for it. So cool. that's kind of cool. Okay. Now, that's something we didn't have on the old stuff. Hmm. So if you have the older modules, Randall or Agnator, it doesn't have that switch. So it is one little feature you don't you don't get. It's sort of just one of the settings is the way the old stuff used to be. And it's fine, but it's kind of cool to have that. Uh-huh. So, nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, so you, are you still involved in designing stuff for synergy or it was that they've licensed your technology and now they've got other people sort of throwing it all together yeah i don't do much for them now they own it outright yeah. it's not even a license yep. um and that's where peter and his guys came in i think uh he does some of it and his his guys at ampete i think have done some of the board layouts because i've seen the schematics and stuff uh last one i did for them well, I did the Steve Vai module, and then the O O D. What do they call it? The Dumble one. There's yep. a Dumble module. Yeah, I think it's O D. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those were the last two things I did for them. And what it is, I do it. I get it fairly close because they're going to change it. Sure. No matter what I do, they're going to tweak it. Yeah, yeah. So I get it sounding good, really close to what I think they're looking for, and then. Uh, they get it and tweak it a little bit, and that's where Peter and Dave and those guys come in. And they work with, you know, Steve I came and sat and said, okay, do this, do that. And yep. So, but those were the last two things. So it's been a while, so I'm not really involved much anymore. Uh, I go to NAM every year, and that's my place to hang out. Sure. It is a great hang. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because that's where all my friends are. Yeah. Um, so that's that but i don't do uh i don't really do much for them so the other thing that i know you for is uh your amp building classes when did Mm -hmm. that start when did that start and how did that come about uh that was god probably 12 years ago and another harebrained idea i was sitting in the bathroom reading a magazine and i saw you know guitar amps and this and that i mean i play guitar you know and I thought, I wonder if we could teach people to build guitar amps. So I came out in the living room. I asked Terry, my wife, I said, think we could teach people to build guitar amps? She goes, I don't know, Pinky. Go ahead. So that's where that came from. So I bought uh, some Mojo kits of their Plexi thing. Mm-hmm. And we used those for a, a, a number of classes. But I modified them. We didn't build the, the stock Mojo kit. But it was close, as close as I could get with an off-the-shelf pile of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we modified the circuit boards and made it a you know higher gain thing, and that just it took off, 
and kind of grew over all these years. Um, last year, I think we did, I don't know if we did six, maybe eight classes throughout the year. Cool. So it's kind of a big deal. Yep. Um, and it's cool. We only do four people at a time, four nice. students. Okay. Yep. So we keep it small, which is why we do so many of them. Uh, at one point, I think the most we had were eight people, and that was just totally out of control. Sure. Um, part of it is helping everybody build their stuff. Yeah. And the other thing is the testing, because when we – so you finish your amp, and we take it over to the test bench, and at, there we have the oscilloscopes, and, and we measure frequency response and gain and all this stuff, and I show them on a computer screen, which is a little beyond what normal guitar amp guys do, but it's a learning thing. I mean, you know, that's that's the whole idea. Is this is a learning experience. So um, we go through this real testing of audio gear yeah. with looking at, you know, frequency response curves on a computer screen and stuff like that, and everybody's kind of... I won't say amazed, but they're kind of in awe of being seeing all that. I bet. Um, but it's cool. It's 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 really cool to do that. But when we have, it takes about twenty minutes to test to thoroughly test each one. And if there's something wrong with one of them, they have to take it back, fix it, bring it back. So you spend fifteen minutes to maybe a half hour testing each one. So if you look at it that way, we could have three or four hours of testing just to get through the group. And it just became an impossible task. We were there till you know, midnight sometimes sure. trying to test. Yeah. So now we just do four people. We make yeah. it easy on us. I guess safety is a big issue as well, wouldn't it be? Um, dealing with high voltages inside an amplifier, so keeping the, the classes smaller. I imagine you can keep an eye on everything and make sure nobody is yeah, doing anything. Yeah, and in gonna... fact, not, well, nothing get, the only thing they can do is burn themselves. I can't hold their hands, which hasn't happened. Ah, a couple of guys got, you know, a little touch something they shouldn't. Yeah. I said, I, you know, and I say, remember when I said don't touch that? Yeah, you know. Um, but nothing even gets powered till they till we bring it over to test it. So I'm kind of in control of the high voltage part of it. Sure, sure. So, um, there was one early on, uh, one of the very early classes. I tested it, and we've even, you know how they say a lot of amps hold voltage for a long time? Yep. You have to be careful. You open up an old Fender amp, and it could still be charged up. Mm -hmm. um, back then, years ago, that's what these amps did. Like, it could still be charged, so we had to discharge it before, you know, all that stuff. Um, so we, uh, one amp got tested, and there was some, a mistake in it, so he had to take it back and fix it. And I forgot to discharge it, and he touched something, and <laughs> he screamed like a girl. It was, didn't hurt him, I and mean, it's not going to kill him, but uh, it was... I was like, okay, that wasn't cool, and I mean, he was fine with it, you know. Yeah. Um, but he survived, and and it was okay. So uh, after that, uh, I now have a one single resistor, 
when you turn it off, it discharges the capacitors. So okay. the last three or four years don't hold the voltage. Great, great. So have it's, you, it's safer. Have you had any uh, nasty accidents over the years yourself, getting your fingers in amongst everything? Have you learnt the hard way? In the, in the classes or just well, no, in just, general? Just in general. I'm sure you would have had it. Oh, yeah. Shit. Yeah. Yeah, and it's nothing to brag about, but you do dumb shit. Yeah, you know? I bet. Um, uh, it's funny when I was I was on that show with Dave and Mark. Yep. Last year. Tone talk. And Dave remembers uh, all these stupid things. I don't even remember half of them. And Dave said, "Remember when you picked up the wrong end of the soldering iron?" Oh. And I was like, "I do remember that." So oh. yeah, there's a million stupid stories. In fact, I did that. Uh, in fact, I was at Randy Jacobs' house working on his stuff in his living room. I had my little kids and my wife were there. Uh -huh. And I had a soldering iron sitting on top of the amps, and I'm doing something. And I reached over like this to pick it up, and I picked up the wrong end, and it laid across my fingers. And, <laughs> and I wasn't going to scream or throw the thing and, you know, set his carpet on fire or something. So I just... I took it and I put it back in the holder and Randy's looking at me, he goes, doesn't that hurt? I said, more than anything in my life. <laughs> you can't imagine. It burned a groove in my, I bet. In my hands and uh, it got worse. The story gets worse because I, um, so that was it. So he said, hey, I got some stuff for burns. So we put them on, wrapped it up. And, you know, I'm letting it heal for a week or so. And then it's like, okay, that's cool. And then I couldn't straighten my fingers. They were stuck like this. Ooh. Can you see that? In yeah, the, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So they were stuck. And uh, so I went to the doctor. And he goes, he looks at it. He's like, holy crap. He goes, how long, did you do, how long ago did you do this? I said, I don't know, about a week. And he goes... All right, let me take a look. And he took my fingers and he goes, he bends them back. And I heard everything rip. I heard it go. Oh, man. So then it, then it hurt again. Um, he said, what happened is that because I let it heal like this from yeah. the inside out or whatever. So like I said, it's not stuff to brag about, but oh, yeah. You, all kind of, you do stupid things and shit happens. So essentially now, the skin had grown back together is that what happened yeah yeah oh. yeah it grew you know it grew together like this where it should have been like this when it was healing or whatever so yeah that's just one of my many stupid stories how about happy accidents have you um accidentally plugged things in and gone i don't know what i just did there but holy hell that sounds good has it been any happy accidents along the way um Boy, specifically, I can't even think of any. Part of the reason is that I've done this for so long that nothing's a surprise. Like, if I want to make something or I want to do something, I can just draw the schematic and go make it, and it'll pretty much do exactly what I I wanted it to do, gosh, I can, other than, you know, early on, everything was uh, try and discover, you know, or try things and discover what they did. 
Um, that one thing where I added the preamp tube to the Marshalls 40 years ago, mm-hmm. it's funny because a, a friend of mine who I still see, he still got the amp. Um, he came to me with his Marshall. And now back then, Plexis were just 300 bucks and they were a dime a dozen and yep. they weren't you know, cool vintage amps. They were just Marshalls that blew up every day. And he brought it to me with his overdrive pedal. I think it was a yellow one. I'm not sure what, it wasn't a MXR, but one of the... The the old Boss overdrive, perhaps? Yeah, if there was a yellow Boss overdrive, or it was green, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. It was the thing everybody was using, the Tube Screamer or whatever. That with a Marshall was like the sound of the 80s. Yeah, yeah. And... Or a big part of it anyway. And he said he brought it to me. He says, can you make my amp sound like I have the pedal without the pedal? And I thought, ah, okay. So I made this tube input stage that sort of mimicked what the pedal did. Mm-hmm. Cut the bass, cut the treble, bump, you know, increase the mid-range gain, all that stuff. Uh, and it sounded great. So that kind of became the one of the sort of standard mods. In fact, I sold those as a do-it-yourself kit. I would make that little circuit and encapsulate it in a little metal box. And you'd drill a hole in your amp, and you could like hook this thing oh, up cool. and, yeah. and make it work yourself. Um, see, I think of all these things when people ask me. It's not like I, I remember any of this. Sure, sure. Um, so that was that, and in fact, that silly little thing is still kind of, it's like very much the fourth channel on the IE4 or the SL++ modules or all that stuff. Is that right? Yeah. So it's still a, a common circuit from 40 years ago. That, wow. Now that was kind of, it wasn't really a stumbled on it. But it was like, well, I don't know if I can do that. Let's find out. And I did it. And was like, wow, that actually works. So, yeah. So not so much an accident, but uh, yeah, there was a lot of experimenting for you know forever. Okay. Even now, I mean, still, uh, you know, there's you see things, or you read something in a book, or somebody posts something on the internet, and go, wow, that's interesting. I've never thought of that. So you might try it. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. Am I right in thinking you're um, working on some some designs? Well, maybe the IE4 that you want to reintroduce is that still in the works? I saw that somewhere on yeah. the forum. Yeah. Yeah. You- As a matter of fact, it's been in the works for like I don't know a year. Um, part of the holdup, big part of the holdup, I had to have custom pots made, you know, all the potentiometers. Mm -hmm. You can't buy off-the-shelf stuff anymore to do what you want. So you have to custom order things when they're on a circuit board and things like that. And um, the uh, there's long lead times on them. So you order these pots, thousands of them, even if you don't need thousands, you got no choice. Um, Not tens of thousands, but enough thousands that it costs you a bunch of money. Yep. Um, and right about the time they were supposed to deliver them, the virus thing hit and everything shut down. So I just got the pots that should have been delivered in uh, like January. 
they just came a couple weeks ago. Okay. Luckily, they were they were right. Yeah. Um, and same with the metal box. You know, everything you get is custom. So you have a custom-made chassis, the metal box, still waiting for the prototype for three months now. Oh, wow. So that's what the holdups are. But, yes, it's done. As far as I can go, I've got the – in fact, today I was just wiring the front panel to the circuit boards just – laying on the table yeah um so yeah that one's happening it'll still be a few months because even after i approve the chassis now i got another three months of waiting to get it <laughs> so but yeah i'm doing that and uh i you know i'm always trying to be creative i don't yep. have i seem to be so busy that i don't have time to implement all these wonderful ideas that sure, i have sure but i'll eventually get to them but i'm doing some a bunch of stuff for other companies have been for a while oh, cool um i did some pedals for fender which yep. was a fun experience a tube overdrive pedal there's a couple of them yep and a tremolo pedal oddly enough um so i did some stuff with them that's recently uh, yeah within the last two years yeah. okay yep and uh, I'm actually doing an amp for Line 6, Yamaha, I think owns Line 6 yep. maybe. Yep. Um, but it's just a big tube head, big 100 watt. They want this head for demos at NAM shows okay. so they can plug their stuff into it. Yep. It's like, okay, so I'm designing that and we might make them 10 of those or whatever. Yep. That's kind of cool. So I keep busy with doing things for other people as well as I, I have a repair business here, which I'd rather not do, but yeah. I, I can't say no. Who are they going to go to? Sure. Um, there aren't other people really in Detroit. I mean, there are some guys that fix stuff, but they're either very picky or they're kind of nuts or whatever reason it is, but I... And, I, you know, I hesitate to send them to certain people. And, yeah. and they're my friends. I've known them my whole life. I can't tell them no. Sure. So here I have this shop full of repairs taking up all my time that I Yeah, that you'd rather, yeah. So you speaking know, of I don't your, want them, but. Speaking of your friends <laughs> and in Detroit, um, we've mentioned Dave Friedman quite a bit along the way. And mm -hmm. you were undoubtedly his mentor from a, an early age. And you said you've known him pretty much since he was a kid. Um, did you know very early on that, um, he had the ear and, um, the attitude to become the great amp designer that he is now? I'm going to uh, let you answer that. I'll be back in, in 30 seconds, mate, I, as you start that. Okay. Should I answer while you're yes, gone? Yes. Yes, please. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, kind of, uh, you could see he was a guy that was going to do stuff. Um, and he certainly did, and I'm uh, kind of flattered that he refers to me as his mentor, but uh, that's kind of cool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Dave is, has come a long, long way. I knew him when he moved to, uh, when he moved from Detroit to California. He worked for Andy Brower which is a uh, big rental place out there that had every cool amp in the world. So 
he learned a lot about all these cool vintage amps just from working there. Uh, and then he started to do the racks. And uh, we've just been involved on and off for, I don't know, 30 years, 40 years, something like that. And that's the Dave story. What else can I tell you? Uh, I'm back. I'm back. Oh, here he comes. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that, mate. <laughs> no problem. I, I need to make a little segment that comes up at, uh, after the hour mark because I do these in the morning and I sit there drinking my coffee and yeah, you know how it is. What goes in must come out. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, Dave did mention I – I could hear you because I was on Bluetooth there. Yeah. He did mention that he reconnected with you many years later in L.A. Uh, right. After he'd done some time with the Andy Brower. Um, so – where was I get, we're going with, with the Dave stories? Yeah, so he... Well, you know what? What's that? Well, that's where, when he worked at Making Music mm -hmm. out there. Um, and what had happened is I hadn't talked to him for quite a few years because he moved away. And Randy Jacobs, the, the guy here, um, I did all his amps, customized all his stuff at some point. And he had uh, a Soldano preamp, the three-channel one, that I had done a bunch of stuff to and made it sound the way he wants. Then Randy moves to California, and he goes into making music. This is where the IE4 came from, really, now okay. that I'm thinking about it. Yep. Uh, he goes into making music with his gear and needs some stuff done, and everybody heard this preamp. It's like, whoa, what is that? Why does that sound like that? And uh, Randy said, oh, it's my friend Bruce in Detroit. And Dave's like, I know Bruce. So that's where we kind of hooked up again. And he, that's when Dave said to me, uh, he goes, you need to make a four-channel preamp. He was the one that said it. So I said, okay. And then it went from there. Okay. The story continued. Just adjusting my camera before it runs out of battery there, mate. Uh, ah. So what's... Um What's on the cards for you now? Uh, apart from the amp building, you've got the IE4 coming out. Uh, you're happy to just keep keep doing that? You, no intention of getting back into mass, uh, not mass producing, but producing an amplifier as a whole apart from the IE4? Uh, only if we can do something somewhat unique. Yeah. Um, I have ideas for things. Uh, in fact, we build a bunch of... We often build the cla the amp class amp, but we'll build them ourselves, and I sell them as a uh, – my company is now called E3. Okay. So, um, you know, we sell these once in a while because we've got parts. It's like, ah, I'll build an amp. Yep. So – but it's not – it's a good amp. It sounds great, but it's just a hot rod at Marshall. There's nothing terribly – Unique, other than it's cool and, you know, Resignator made it or whatever. Yep. Um, but I have ideas and plans to do stuff. It's just a matter of finding the time. Sure. So, yeah, I sure. mean, you know, I've got years of wonderful ideas that have never happened and if I can make, you know, maneuver my time around, maybe I can make some of those things happen. Okay. So, Bruce, so, you did mention yeah. that you're a, a player, for, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. 
what what's your what's your bag, mate? What what do you like to play? What style? And who are you, who are some of your influences, playing wise? Nowadays, I still like the shredder guys, Steve I, Lukather. I guess you'd call them all shredders. Yep. Um, not so much the heavy metal guys, but those kind of guys. Interestingly enough, when I was really young, Al Demiola was my favorite. Oh, cool. Player, I remember that when I was, you know, early twenties. So I tried to kind of emulate him. Um, and it's funny, we had a band when we were, God, I think we were 18 years old because we played in a bar when we were underage. I remember that. Mm -hmm. With these guys, local guys, there was me, uh, keyboard, bass, singer, drums. And all the guys in the band were just tremendous. Um, they, he had the stack of keyboards when before MIDI. Yep. Uh, and we did, uh, I guess it would be progressive rock, like Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and all that stuff. And I was kind of the, uh, the worst player in the band, but I was the most reliable and I could fix the broken stuff. <laughs> so they kept me in the band. But, you know, I, I kept up as best I could. Yeah. But we learned the entire first side of Close to the Edge. Like, start to finish. The singer sounded just like John Anderson, all that stuff. We learned the whole thing from start to finish. And uh, it took us, you know, a year. Yeah. And we finally were ready, and we're going to go out and play this. So we got a job at a... A bar, the bars back then were huge. You know, they were almost like concert bars in Detroit. And uh, we we got this job and through some agency that just lied about our age. And we played that the whole first set. Close, We played close wow. to the edge, yeah. the first set at yeah. the bar. And we finish that and we're all pumped up we think we're gods you know we just played close to the edge and got all the way through it yep and uh the bar owner calls us over after that first set he calls us over he goes come here boys come here he goes i don't know what that shit was but don't ever play that stuff in my bar again and we had to play two more nights so we sat down and figured out how we're gonna stretch we didn't know we we had just enough to do the job, so we had to figure out how to stretch all the songs with extra courses, extra verses, you know, and fill the first set with that. But that was kind of cool. So back then, I, you know, you liked everything. Um, I wasn't like a, a Van Halen freak, you know. I liked Van Halen. I liked. I loved Queen, you know, all that kind of stuff. I, I really like the, um, I don't know if you'd call it the melodic guitar stuff or the, uh, that kind of thing. To me, like Brian May is sort of a uh, orchestral guitar player. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. Um, yeah, in fact, I had a, uh, I remember I got a Revox tape recorder. I don't know if you ever heard of that brand. It had sound on sound, so you could stack stuff just bounce back and forth forever cool. on this two-track tape machine of course every time you did you'd lose quality and by the time you got to your you know 15th bounce it was like but i learned because i was obsessed with that guitar harmony thing mm -hmm. 
And so for a long time, I would sit and record guitar harmony stuff on these uh, on this tape recorder. So that's the kind of thing I, I did when I was growing up. Uh, then as we got older, then we just had like 60s bands and just played all the old songs we had learned 30 years before and sure. didn't have to learn anything new. And, you know, it was it was just for fun. Yep. So I did that for a long time. Then I got married, and it became too much playing every weekend and all that kind of stuff. So, Do you still play but, for fun? Uh, just for fun. Yep. Yeah. It's funny. Some friends called, called me and see if I wanted to come over and jam a few weeks ago. Yep. I hadn't played with anybody in 20 years. Wow. And I found out how much I forgot. You know, so. It doesn't take long. But yeah, I still – no. But I still – you know, play for when I'm testing stuff or sitting around the shop. I might just stop and sit down and pick up the guitar and play it. Yep, yep. So, I just, I've just had but, a bit of time off myself, and it doesn't take long to lose the calluses on your fingers. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, I really want to get back into it, and I'm just noticing, ooh, it hurts, it hurts. But yeah. funny that you bring up the whole Brian May thing. I was a, a Brian May impersonator for a few years. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. I was in an international touring uh, Queen tribute show. Uh, and I didn't really appreciate Brian that much until I started doing that and learning to play the parts and everything. Uh, I wasn't that big a Queen fan beforehand, but funnily enough, uh, I'm exactly the same height as him and I put on the wig and I have a bit of a resemblance to him. And a yeah. lot of that tone is having to use a coin. Yeah. I've got one of his minted coins here. If yeah. I hide my face, that should focus on it. Yeah. Uh, and it's got... Yeah, there's just that serrated edge on the coin. Right. Is really a big part of his, his tone. Well, everything he had was kind of unique. I mean, using a stack of AC-30s and, and then the guitar. So all those odd things. You know, it's funny. I was in... Where's Toman? Germany? Germany, yep. Okay. Because I was there once and met some band that was a queen that, impersonating that, band yep. at Toman. Yep. I know who it those guys you, are. No, it? it wasn't me. No, oh, that okay. would be... Um, I'm friends with the this guitar was... player from that. Wolf, Wolf Dieter Kunz um, would be the, the chap that you would have met, who I, I huh. do know through through Facebook, yeah. Um, that's funny. Just like the amp building world, you know, like the, the Queen guys all, all knew each other. <coughs> yeah. I think I may have seen the last ever Queen live show. Uh, they played in my hometown. It was the last leg of the tour they did before the whole virus thing. And unfortunately, um, Brian's had a couple of things in recent weeks where he tore his, his butt really bad, his gluteus maximus, and then he had a, a mild, yeah. mild heart attack recently as well. So, um, The guy's like 70 years old. And yeah, 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 yeah. So I think I could have seen the last Queen live show. Uh, hmm. I did get to, to, to meet Pete Melandrone, his tech, just before the show. My, my friend is, is good friends with him. Uh, and he said they, they were all very tired at that stage. Yeah. Uh, and they were just looking forward to getting home for a bit of a break. But whether it carries on, I'm not sure. So, folks, we do have a few people in the chat room, and I haven't really been keeping an eye oh. on um, 
on any questions or anything in there because I like to actually give the guest my undivided attention. So if you've got any questions for Bruce, now would be a good time to chuck them into the little chat. And I am aware there's probably about a 10-second delay, so before things start coming up there. Uh, Bruce, anything you, know you want something? to... something? What's that, mate? Well, I was going to tell you, speaking of Queen, yeah. the first time I saw them, I don't even know if I knew who they were. I think I knew who they were. Yeah, because we did some of their songs in that band that did close to the edge yep um they had brian may had it and they even used them on the pa the way they did the the harmony stuff Mm -hmm. with themselves yep they did it live which now is easy with digital you know my recording yep um Back then, they had Maestro Exo, modified Maestro Echoplexes, and they were like three feet long. So they could record on one end of the tape, and then they would get probably about five or six seconds for the tape to go all the way along this three-foot path. You know how an Echoplex works with yeah, a yeah, tape? Yeah. And then it would play back on the other end. So it was the sound-on-sound, uh, sound, overdub, whatever thing, yeah. and that's how they did it. And they even used it live on the PA, how Freddie wow. Mercury did his, where he, and they did it in stereo. So he'd do his line, and then it would repeat over there and repeat over there. It was like, I was like amazed when I saw this. And Brian May had him for his guitar, too. Yeah. So whoever came up with that was like, wow. Yeah, <laughs> very forward-thinking, very forward-thinking, that's for sure. Yeah, that was mm. cool. Totally. I'm just going to have a look in the chat here. A few things have popped up. Let me see. Okay. Um, when I turn up my... Okay, so I'm not sure if this is a maintenance issue, but Adam is saying that when I turn up my IE4 on each channel, it appears to pick up the picking noise on the guitar. When I turn it down to 8 o'clock, it goes away. I've never seen this... Is this normal? That might be a, a technical mm. issue thing. But what can people get a hold of you for technical issues? Oh yeah, yep. yeah. They they What's can the email place? me. Is the basic beegnator at aol dot com. Yes, I still have AOL. Yeah. Um. So it's b e g n a t e r at aol. Okay. Uh, it's that easy. And somebody has said replace some tubes. So I think that could be the issue there. Uh, whatever happened to the Ignator Detroit? 18 watt and 40 watt amps <laughs> from around NAM 2013. They never made you it know, to the market, did they? Nope. Uh, back then, and uh, boutique amps or ETI had to learn this, just like we all do over the years, as you know, people trying to sell stuff. You never show prototypes, and they said, no, 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 we want to show them, and then we'll make them, and this and that, and. They wanted to make them here in in California, U.S., um, and then they kind of realized that that wasn't feasible just for the cost. Um, so we made these cool prototypes, and uh, then they dropped it. Never came out, and that was the end of that. Oh, no. They had a bunch of cool features on them, too. Yep. Uh, okay, a couple more questions here. My battery could run out any time. If that does happen, I'm going to switch to the, the camera on my um, on my laptop here, which is a lot better than what I used to use. Uh, did the Seymour Duncan convertible amp influence you? It says, um, John Ewing and Nate Williams are my heroes. I'm not too sure who they, yeah. they, they are. 
they worked at uh, Eggnator. Okay. When ETI out in California owned yep. it. Um, owns it. Years ago. This was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what did you ask me? Uh, what was the question? Uh, so the, yeah, Seymour Duncan Convertible. Was that uh, oh, an influence oh. on you? Not really. Um, that was a totally different concept. Um, what they did, which was pretty cool back then, uh, but what Seymour Duncan did, they had, I don't know if you've ever even seen one of those. It's I an saw amp it in combo. Yep. Yeah, they had a, a slot in the top, and they had five little plastic modules, must have been about an inch and a half square with a tube on them. And you could plug them into these connectors down in the holes in different combinations. And each module or each, yeah, each plug-in module sounded different. So you could make different combinations of stuff to kind of make your own sounds. Um, It wasn't really, even though they sort of implied it, it didn't really emulate any amp in particular. It was just a cool thing that you could have more gain, less gain, more bass, less bass, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yep. One interesting thing, and one of the reasons that it never really was able to emulate or sound like specific amps. Like I said, you know, you put this combination of modules, it's a box. You put this combination, it's a Marshall, and it didn't really work. And the reason it didn't work... Oh, these headphones are tight. Yeah, um, it's a bit uncomfortable after a while, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the reason it didn't work is because the tone control circuit didn't change. Ah. There's the treble, middle, and bass. And most people don't know it, and we kind of discovered it when we were developing the modular stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we found was simplified. If you don't have the tone control circuit, it's three pots and four parts. It's like seven parts total. If you don't have that circuit, you can't have that amp. In other words, if you're trying to make something sound like a Vox and it's got Fender tone controls in it, just that combination of a few parts... You can't do it. And when we were developing the modular stuff, we found that that is the most important thing to getting in the right direction to sound a certain way. Like everybody plays the, the Vox module and goes, wow, it's amazing. It's, it's almost like my Vox AC30. Uh-huh. And in fact, what that is is basically kind of a JCM 800 preamp with Vox tone controls. Okay, Wow. Nothing to do with Vox other than the tone controls. Yep. Um, so that's one of the things the Duncan, the Seymour Duncan amp didn't do. It had tone controls that just kind of whatever they did, they did. So you couldn't really make it sound like different brands of amps. Um, so, no, it wasn't really the same, but those were pretty cool too. Sure. Bruce, your mic has just fallen down. It's rubbing on your um, collar. I was just wondering where that that sound was coming from, but that that's that's exactly what it was right there. Uh, okay. Now, it's funny that you, you bring oh, – that's much better. Uh, it's funny that you bring that up because, as I said, I've got the little tweaker behind me there, and you can switch between different tone stacks on, on that, right? So, yeah, that's yeah. what it's doing. Mm-hmm. 
It's switching between Fender, Marshall, and Vox are pretty close. That mic's just falling down again, mate. Is it really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's better. Yeah, that's it. Okay, that's it. I yeah. won't. I won't move. Yeah. Uh, the mic doesn't. Adjust, it, oh, so. that how annoying. Uh, my my camera did run out of battery, but you know what? My new laptop is just as good. I might not even bother with the. Uh, did the you DSL switch? Logo. I did. I did. I don't know if you saw me so oh, do I this over here any. before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now you're you're actually seeing my laptop, not the the DSLR that I was using, but oh, it's okay. much better. So I still got a couple more questions here. Um, sure. Bruce, you legend. What's next for ya? Now we've already said we've already said that. Now the ya makes me t- makes me think that must be another Aussie. There you go, mate. <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> they must have dropped in because we did. I did ask you what was what you're up to. Uh, now ask Bruce: Is it safe to change a preamp in the RM4 while it's on, or does it need to be turned off before you switch one? Before you swap. Well, one? you can do it. Uh, I don't, I have never heard of any, and it's something we tested because we knew people would do it, mm-hmm. whether it's an M4 or an RM4 or whatever. Uh, two things can happen. One, it can make a really loud pop, which sucks if you pull a module in and out while it's on. Yeah. And um, sometimes it will uh, lock up the MIDI. So you put in your new module and it won't switch channels. Um, but the nuisance is that the power switch is on the back. Ah. We should have put the switch on the front, but there's no room, and we just didn't even think of it. Yep. But we did test that a thousand times, Yep. pulling modules in and out two at a time, you know, doing everything abusive we could do. Yep. And the M4, the Agnator M4, which is our version of the RM4, um, we never had a failure or anything other than the MIDI would lock up once in a while. Okay. I'm going to say it's not a great idea because you are pulling the thing in and out with high voltage and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's not a great thing to do. If you can avoid it, do it. If it's just an impossible thing to avoid, well, go ahead. But if something goes wrong, don't call me. <laughs> Sure, sure. Does that make uh, sense? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Uh, someone had said that they just enjoyed listening to Bruce, which is great. Uh, Mark Day says, just wanted to say hi, Bruce, good to see you. Yeah. Um, Mark Day, I just Mark want to say Day. hi, man. I, I, I was familiar with your videos years ago, Mark, so I just want to say hi to you, man. Um, okay. Although I don't know you personally. Let me tell you about Mark. Yeah, tell us about Mark. Let me tell you what you know about Mark. Sure. Mark lives way up in Canada somewhere. Oh, okay. Some little town, you know, 400 miles away up mm-hmm. in Canada. We're in Michigan. Yep. So we're right at the border of Canada. If you keep going north out of Michigan, you go into Canada, and then you just go forever, and Canada's a big place. He lives way up there somewhere. He took the very first class where all we did was build an amp. We didn't do the two days of teaching and all that stuff. It was just a bunch of dudes making amps, it works, and you go home. So he was in the very first class, and he built his stuff, and he was real talented. This was He didn't know anything about amps at the time. Now mm-hmm. he's like, you know, product specialist at Fractal. But uh, he didn't know anything about amps back then or electronics or anything. And he built it, and it was like, are you sure you've never done this before? He's just one of those guys. Yeah. 
that everything he does, he does well, yep. even if he doesn't know how to do it. Yep. So he made his amp, and he left probably about 8 o'clock that night, 6, 8 o'clock. This was 12 years ago, so I don't remember exactly. But he left, and the next morning, and he lives 10 hours away or 8 hours away. Yep. The next morning, there he is at home with making video. He, he had videos done. Of his amp that he had just built. Wow. It's like, wait a minute. How did <laughs> you had to drive home? How did you do this? And he'd already driven there the day before. You know, it was like an 80 hour day for yeah. him. Yep. And so I took, called him or whatever. We talked. I said, how did you do that? <laughs> and he said he was so geeked up and excited about having just built this amp and he, he said, I had a hotel room, said, I couldn't sleep. I just got in my car and drove home. Wow. Like all night he drove after he'd been there for eight hours during the day building this amp. So that was the mark day. And those videos you see of him with his Eggnator amp uh, were the one he built in the class. Then he modified them after and stuff like that. So, okay. But yeah, that's my mark day story. Wow. Okay. So I... I think I'm thinking of the same guy. I'm thinking of back to the Tone Merchant days um, in L.A., and I always thought that he was yeah, based yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in L.A. Um, okay, what else have we well, got he here? Did. He... Uh, we've got Maxwell Burley. I don't know, Bowerly. Thanks, Bruce, for sharing your knowledge so readily on Facebook groups. Uh, Drew Barrys. Hey, Drew. Uh, hi, Bruce. I mean, this is, like, really small. I'm going to get in closer. Uh, is Bruce aware that Andy at Shut Up and Play uses a Renegade 65? Wish it was still made. Um, weren't aware of that? I don't even know what that is. Me either. Shut uh, Up and Play? I yeah. don't know. Uh, but cool. Yeah. <laughs> Shame about the Detroits. They looked so cool that I really wanted one from Ryan... Uh, somebody's saying AOL, yeah. That's the thing about when people use um, email addresses that are locked in with a, a provider, you're locked in. Uh, yeah. Bruce, do you do your own PCB layouts and on which EDA platform? Uh, I do. I have for probably 20 years. Um, Eagle is the one I use. Okay. Um, that's a popular one. And that's what I do. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Doug DeJong. Hey, Doug. How you doing, buddy? Uh, he's a local guy. Uh, what guitars do you use personally to design the sound and functions of the amps? That's a good question. It's funny. I, was th I, did, I came home to do this chat thing, mm -hmm. but I was going to stay at the shop just in case somebody wanted to see the guitar. I have a guitar that I bought... When I worked at that Gus Zappi Music yeah. when I was 18, 20 years old, yep. it's an Epiphone, shoot, Wilshire maybe, double cutaway, almost, I wish I had, I'll send you a picture of it. Yep, yep. Um, but I bought it uh, for 20 bucks cool. at Zappi's when I worked there, yep. and it was horrible. You know, it was just a piece of crap. The Epiphone guitar. It looked like somebody had painted it with a brush. Yep. Um, I bought that, and it had these, uh, 
you know, these horrible P90 pickups in it that buzz. So, of course, I threw those away. They were from 1962. Got rid of that junk. Yeah. And uh, so it's it's a piece of wood with all new hardware on it. Um, I think I've got Lawler pickups in it. But it's the only thing I use. I have one guitar. I've had others. But I have one guitar, and I know exactly what it sounds like. And it's got coil tap switches and stuff, so I yep. can do things. But that's what I use. And wow. I've got a, I've got a 412 cabinet that sits there. It used to belong to my son. Well, it still belongs to my son, but I inherited it. Um, and that's it. That's all I use. I don't own a bunch You're of right. guitars or okay. amps or. Yep. Well, I own a bunch of amps, but I don't need them. I just yep. have them because yep. I have. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting to know. I thought you'd have a, a whole assortment of them, but but no. Um, what else have we got here? Bruce, would you want to make a 50-watt power amp that is sized to fit on modern pedal boards? Hey, that's a very good question because pedal board amps seem to be a bit of a, a thing these days. Yeah, it. well, there are some out there, obviously. Seymour Duncan makes a really good one. Um, and uh, not Rocktron. Um ISP is another one. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them. Yep. They make the um, decimator so there too, are, right? Yeah. So there is stuff available. They're all Class D digital amps. That's the only way you can get that much power out of a little box the size of a pedal. Um, to answer the question, eh, not likely. No? There's stuff out there that already does it, and I don't know. Why would I make something that... I can't necessarily improve on what they've done. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say no on that one. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if they're, they're, I think they're referencing just a power amp, but there's a great thing out. I've mentioned it a few times to people, the um, Blue Guitar Amp 1, which is a floor amp. That's that's really cool. I've played that Mm -hmm. a couple of times, and it's like having a four-channel Marshall on on the floor, and it seems to be the the way people have been using their fractals and things, but – how about a power yeah. amp as well to, to drive some cabs? Yeah. Uh, what else have we got here? Bruce, have you repaired ADA MP1 preamps before? What can you say about them? I've got one right there. Uh, boy, last last time I saw one of those was, I don't know, 40 years ago. Everything is when they were new. Yeah. You yeah. Know. Um, so, no, I, uh, I haven't seen one in decades. Just like the Marshall preamp, I haven't seen the JMP. I don't right know if you there. have a JMP there. Yeah, right there. I haven't yep. seen either one of those in a long, long time, strangely enough. but You know, no. the, the ADA all through the 90s was, was my – that was my jam. I went from playing – somebody asked me this yesterday. Um, my first ever amp was a, a PV Studio Pro 112 – tiny little thing mm-hmm. I'm talking when I was you know 13 years old 14 years old and then I went straight from that into an ADA MP1 and I thought it sounded great at the time I scored sure. that scored that one not that long ago thinking yeah I might start using this because as I said the Synergy dealers here is 2,000 kilometers away so I right. can't get one without actually you know playing it first so I was going to go back to using that and when I did mm. fire it up it just did not have <laughs> what I look for now, you know, just that whole touch responsiveness and being able to 
ride the volume knob. And to my ears, it's just a scratchy sound now. It just yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, the romance is gone. It totally know. has. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what else we got here? Bruce, could you please explain the switch behind the transformer on the Vengeance and the Armageddon? There is very, very little info in the manual. Just wondering what you intended it to be used for. Thanks. Well, the goal was have it appear to do nothing. What it is, uh, because those amps are pretty darn high gain, we had, and there, this comes and goes over the years, but we had, it became almost impossible to find non-microphonic tubes five years ago. Mm. Everything you got was microphonic. And uh, what that is, I came up with a really cool little uh, high-voltage FET MOSFET tube replacement circuit. And that's what you're switching between. Is an act Only on the overdrive channel, it switches between the input tube or the tube input for the overdrive or channels two and three and the solid state input circuit. So it's not the overdrive part of it, it's just the first gain that your guitar goes into. Um, and they are so close, I defy anyone to, to really hear a difference. And if you do, it's like, okay, tell me which is which. Uh -huh. So that's why we didn't mark it. Um, but if you have a microphonic tube and you flip the switch, you've taken the tube out of the picture. Nice. So we actually ship it shipped it back then in the solid state setting so we didn't have trouble with with microphonic tubes and in fact that same input circuit is in the tweaker and something else i can't remember where else i used it um and it's so funny because people say yeah the tweaker takes pedals great whatever that means mm -hmm. and it's it's a, it's not even a tube at the input, but it emulates it. It makes it so close that you can't tell the difference. You said about the um, the tweaker taking pedals well, and I said I, I played in a Queen tribute show. Uh, the chap that builds a lot of Brian May's gear is Greg Fryer in Sydney over here in Australia, and he would send me mm -hmm. prototypes of the treble boosters that Brian was using before he'd send them to, to Brian. And man, that that Agnata tweaker with a Brian May treble booster in front of it. <laughs> Holy! Yeah, like off, off the shelf, that is not a metal amp. You couldn't do the chugga-chugga thing. Yeah, it, it's not made for that. It doesn't have that tight low end. Put a treble booster in front of it. Ooh, huh. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, yeah. I'd surprise, and just the touch sensitivity of the volume of wind it back. And, there it is. There's my clean. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Cool. Uh, what else we got here? There's a lot of kudos coming your way there, mate, um, from people. Um, nice. Okay, Bruce, what what was – and forgive me, folks, the, the comments thing is really small over here, so I'm trying to look through my multifocals down, down <laughs> my nose. Uh, what was the BOM cost of the Armageddon front paddle? You could get a – what was the BOM cost of the Armageddon front pedal? You could grill a bloody steak on it. Front Does that make sense? Panel, maybe? The front panel? 
I think they're just talking about the the uh, the, the temperature of it. What was? Yeah. Well, there is a fan in there, so it shouldn't be that hot unless you disconnected the fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, the bill of materials cost? I, I don't know. I couldn't even <laughs> begin to answer. That's what BOM is, is bill of materials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know. Not sure what the question is exactly. No, me either. Me um, either. I sort of but the front that. panel should not be that hot. It's probably... I would kind of guess the transformer is getting that hot, but the fan should help that. So make sure the fan is working. Um, but I've never experienced that one. You know, there's lots of things I've seen, but not that. So I don't uh, know. He's just saying it's heavy aluminium. Must be expensive is all I mean. So he's just saying it must oh, have cost okay. a bit. Yeah. Well, it's, that's one of the things about getting stuff made in China. That's a cast aluminum panel, and it's it's heavy, yeah. Um, to have a mold made back then in the United States, to cast that panel would have cost $50,000. Wow. $20,000, just for the mold, not to make the part. And in China, I think it was like $400 for the... <laughs> the mold to make that thing. So that's what I mean. In China, that's one of the things, the one advantage that you have is the ridiculous cost on some items. And it's not like that hunk of metal could have been made better somewhere else, but we couldn't have afforded to do that if China didn't exist and do that for us. Uh So that's what that is. You, you you do realize you guys say uh, aluminium funny, right? <laughs> I don't. No, no. I, always, I say aluminum. Aluminum, yeah. I always say that to, to my American friends. Um, you're missing some letters there. Aluminium. It's one of those aluminum. things. Tomato, it's tomato. It's aluminum. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> uh, Bruce, is the amp building class with you and Dave Friedman that Dave teased about in California still possible? Like this year? Uh well, not this year for sure. Um, conceivable someday. Uh, honestly, it would just be really cool. But for me, there's not a big advantage to doing it, a, a team with Dave, because we just do it ourselves at our own little shop. Um, but something special you know, and do it out there. So, um, no, don't hold your breath waiting for it because we've been talking about it for years. Um, but, you know, but this year, no, there's no way. Well, you know, with what's going on, there's no way this year. Mm-hmm. I think that's all we've got. Folks, if you've got any questions, this is the last call on questions. Um, if people have just come across my little chit chats uh for the first time and it is fairly new if you saw at the start i went through just a a list of some of the past guests um best kept secret on youtube for us guitar nerds uh so (laughs) it is a podcast style thing i have been asking friends would you prefer if i did this as an audio thing as a podcast and they said no we like the look of of excitement on your face as you're talking to the guests. So <laughs> I must look like a, cool. a kid in a candy shop. Well, uh, the video thing is cool. So, yeah. I think so. I think so. Um, yeah. Like, I'm a big fan of Tone Talk uh, with, with Dave and Mark. Cool. And I 
like to see the guys. So I'm not sure if it's that much of a hassle for people to put it on YouTube as opposed to a podcast. I may even just rip the audio from some of these and put them up on some podcasting sites if that helps people. But um, please like, subscribe, share, all that kind of thing, folks. I'm I'm terrible at at asking to do that. I'm going to hit the little button that puts my little thing in the corner that says there's a thumb, there's a subscribe, there's a bell and little fireworks saves me having to say it all the time bruce i do want to thank you so much for your time mate uh my pleasure my honor absolutely i'm just seeing if there's anything else in that meantime ah here we go favorite adult beverage me yeah i'm a beer guy you're a beer guy yeah that's that's about it (laughs) and i'm not even terribly particular about that Uh, oh Man, I, I barely drink. It's very rare. And I spent a week in Germany with, with Dave Friedman. Oh, God. And um, I don't like seeing myself on video after a few drinks. It's not cool. <laughs> I don't yeah. like who I become. <laughs> well, well, they have beer in the vending machines in Germany. I remember seeing that. Yeah, yeah. Like, a, you know, a, a, we call it pop. I don't know what you Soda. Yep, yep. Um, you know, there's a machine, it's got Coke, Pepsi, and some other stuff, and a couple kinds of beer, all in the vending machines yeah, in the hotel yeah. lobby. It was very yeah. strange. Japan's so. like that as well, and it's everywhere. And the kids the kids don't just go and drink beer. They, they're like, oh, I wouldn't do that. They're all very well behaved. It's, it's quite funny to see. <laughs> yeah. So, Bruce, I am going to round it up, mate. We are hitting that two-hour mark, and um, you must be... Wow. Yeah, I told you, it goes fast. You've done these before, so you know that, yeah. So, folks, thanks again. I'm going to hit the little button, a little round of applause for for, for Bruce. Yay! And I'll see you next time. I think, who have I got next up? I've got my friend Vladimir from Catpick Studios on Thursday, and then we've got Doug Rappaport on Saturday, my time, Friday, the rest of you guys. And then if you guys actually subscribe every Saturday or Sunday, I post the next week's guests. And I'm trying to keep it a mixture of folks like Bruce uh, from the behind the brands, players, and even some educational stuff. So hopefully that there's something in it for everybody. So thank you for your time. I'll see you guys later. End screen now. Uh